Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. The Talmud is the central pillar supporting the entire spiritual and intellectual edifice of Jewish life. So wrote Rabbi Adin Evan Israel Steinseltz. Not only did Rabbi Adin Steinseltz publish an English translation and commentary of the entire Talmud in 42 volumes, the Noah edition Koran Talmud Babli, he also published a guide for studying the Talmud titled The Essential Talmud and a reference guide to the Talmud and Talmudic Images, which represents the life and historical context of 13 key Talmudic sages. Join us as we speak with Rabbi Meni Evan Israel about his father's lifelong work of Talmudic scholarship as published with Koran Publishers. You're listening to New Books in Jewish Studies, a channel of the New Books Network, and I'm Michael Morales, your host. Rabbi Meni Evan Israel serves as the executive director of the Steinseltz Center which oversees the teachings and publications of his father, Rabbi Adin Evan Israel Steinseltz, and which has recently put out an app, the Steinseltz Daily Study. Rabbi Many, welcome to New Books in Jewish Studies. Thank you so much, Michael. It's a pleasure to be with you again. Rabbi Many, tell us about the significant place of the Talmud in the scholarship of your father, of blessed memory, Rabbi Adin Evan Israel Steinseltz. How many years did he spend translating and commentating on the Talmud? So my father, apparently it was my father's first um, epiphany about the way, uh, the way the knowledge of the Jewish people has to be disseminated, and the importance of the Talmud became something that he... We moved from a from an archaic book meant for the few to again bringing back to its glory days that which was you know everybody's supposed to learn it as the key of understanding Jewish thought or Jewish understanding but more so even though it's dealing a lot with Jewish law because it's a law book in a sense a lot of it is cultural a lot of it is, is teaching us the stories and the culture and the heritage of our people. A lot of the stories also have a historical um, benefit as it's not censored in the sense of sense, in the sense that the, the sages who are the heroes of the book, it's a book, it's a much more of a, a, a study material, much more of a curricular concept, is, is they're not limited to speak only about, about law. You can speak about everything. You can speak about any any possible topic. But the most important thing is that in our tradition, without learning Talmud, you disappear. We we see it in communities that used to learn Talmud and then for whatever reason stopped learning Talmud. Because it was burning the Talmud or the fact there was no leadership to teach Talmud. Those communities eventually literally literally disappeared. Anyway, so so we we ha- my father actually holds this as a historical truth. I'm struggling with it. It's historical truth or historical practicality. I mean, it's it's a small detail because there were some communities that were learning Talmud, but it was not the emphasis of the community. And again, you got the same result. The most famous one, if I may, is is the community in, in uh, New Amsterdam, 
happened to be later in New York, is that we know the community there arrived very early, talking about early 17th century, so to speak, 18th century, 18th century, early early, talking about 17th something, and they and they had a Jewish community that was very big, and they disappeared. In the very few, if at all, any remnants of the old Jewish community of 300 years ago. And the main reason was because it never developed, they were, tr- they were uh, merchants, sheep builders, sheep owners, and they were a member of the, the, the Netherlands West Indies Company, in, in, or East Wading, I don't remember which one. But the thing in reality is they didn't learn, and then they basically disappeared. The most devastating example of that is Italy. It's, it's almost a proof, again, it's almost that once the Talmud was burning in, uh, in Rome, even though the Jews were kept more or less alive and, and under the scrutiny of the Pope, the learning level, the, 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 the growth of the community really was held back. And, and we think it's because of that learning Talmud. The Talmud is really the most essential book of the Jewish people, even though, again, with the respect to the Bible. Obviously, the Bible is the core base of the Talmud. The Talmud is based on it. So my father, when he was very young, my grandfather told him that he doesn't care if he's becoming a heretic. That doesn't bother him. But he cannot be ignoramus. And by us, being ignoramus is really the ability to learn Talmud. That is really where the line in the sand, the line that describes yes and no, is that particular line of learning Talmud. So... So he, I think from very young age, he realizes that this is the way. There's no other way around it. You need to have, you need to have a path to, to understand it. And the biggest challenge, the first challenge that he saw was before the, just the, the system of the Talmud. The first challenge he saw was the language barrier. Talmud is written with a mixture of Hebrew and Aramaic. Hebrew is a language that literally is dead. Every time we went to exile, we adopted the local language. That's the reason we have Yiddish, we have Ladino. Apparently, there's many more options and variation of it. But in general, they um, so in Aramaic was the same thing. So again, those languages are very old languages, and, and in a lot of ways, they're dead languages. I mean, talking about the language that only seven people, seven million people, or ten million people speak. You know, it's not really a very live language the size of the world. And um, he took upon himself to first of all translate it. He took this progress on him over the, the, the earliest copy of it. We saw in 1961. He was, he was then 24. 24? Yeah. yeah. It was 24. I mean, the fact that somebody has the courage to do such a thing was, was already outstanding. And he took upon himself to do this commentary to make it accessible and available to, obviously, the natural thing is to first of all start with the the Israelis around him and the Jewish nation as as a, a Jewish people as the second stage, but obviously is opening the Talmud now for the first time in history in an open way, not hiding anything, not uh, not not uh, censoring anything, not self censor, outside censor, really everything open. In in the whole, the people who accept it as a is a knowledge book. And not necessarily is a 100% factual book or 100% a law binding book. Uh, even our laws, as much as this book is very uh, involved with this, involved involve the law, a lot of the laws change. Like, they you know, the progress, they immerse, they, they you know, they, they, um, they move to where they were in the first century, to where they moved in the fifth century, 
or 9th century. And then eventually they get to the situation where they are at today. And even that is changed constantly, which is a normal process of a law. You know, we just read the Torah portion of, uh, of uh, Shoftim. Yeah, Shoftim, which deals with the rules of judges. I mean, even though it has six lines about it, it's not that advanced. But the main line there, which is really the base of the Jewish concept of oral law, the law was transferred from ear to mouth, so to speak, from, from you know, from mouth to ear, sorry, generation to generation. That That is based on a line in this, ver- in this Torah portion that says, you should come to the judge and the priest that will be in your days. And the judge and the priest in your days is the one who made the decision. There's a very, very uh, famous story about the rabbi of Krakow. Our Krakow, after the war, had to go and... Um, the community just came back from the Holocaust. They were dispersed. They were sad. And the typical way it is, people were, you know, fighting. You know, they didn't know who's going to be in charge and not be in charge. And you know it's going to have very limited time. I mean, they all understood that the goal was to get to the land of Israel. But there was a lot of issues. And when you get to the city of Krakow, there's a big synagogue there, synagogue of the Ramah. Ramah was Moshe Iserlish, which was the the... The commentator on the Shulchan Aruch, which is the Jewish code of law, and he was he lived there, and um, they were his chair is still in existence, even though after after destruction nobody dared to touch it, and nobody used to sit on it because it's a matter of respect. But this guy had no choice. He said, "I'm going to sit on the chair because people sit and have the courage to sit in the chair." They will listen to me because I'm in this generation. I'm the generation they need, and then have to listen to me. So the same thing applies. The, the answer is really the base of of of, of oral law. My father spent um, 45 years doing it, and um, he, he finished the actual the actual work was done by uh, in 2010, which is literally it's close to 60 years of work on it, uh, 50 years of work on it. The, and the main purpose was because. I, I think very early, maybe 20 years into this, out of 50, he already had a variety of other projects that he was involved with. And because of another project he was involved with, he, you know, the, the amount of effort and time and money that, you know, this thing costs, as usual, tremendous amount of uh, resources were allocated to the other things he was doing. And the same thing applied for good translators, good editors, and good in good researchers, if you have good people that can do other job also and writing and translating is just a secondary work, you gotta do that. You know, and I think that's um, that's one reason it took so long. Uh, but he finally finished in 2010. Uh, it was also a big celebration, big commemoration. The most annoying question he got from people was, so Rabbi, after you accomplished your life mission, what are you going to do now? And my, and my father and the Shangos uh, used to look at them like they fell from a tree. I mean, like, for him, the fact that he finished the Talmud was, was, you know, I can't tell you he was not happy. Let, let's not, let, let's, I'm not, uh, not but he, that he was clear for him that there are thousands of other projects that can be done. It was obviously to him that, that this is not enough, you know, that it's not something, okay, you do this and you go home and you tap on your shoulder and say, yay. He understood that this is just one step in the process of work. Well, aside from the 42 volumes of the Talmud in English translation with commentary, we want to highlight a few other books Rabbi Evan Israel wrote about the Talmud. The first is The Essential Talmud. Tell us about 
how this would be helpful for the average reader. Okay, so essential Talmud is really not as much as it, is, as it says uh, essential Talmud in the sense of, oh, this is the basic of learning. No, it's really the basic about the Talmud. It will give you a cross, a cross uh, information, essential information, that's hence the key word here, about what the Talmud was, how it was created, what was the progress, how it's been really done, what's the important notion to put attention to, understand the length and, and um, the length and the effort it took to make this kind of book and how significant it is. The book divides a variety of parts to, uh, that we're basically dealing with, again, the historical concept, historical background, the, the merit of the work. Each one of those sections brought another aspect of my father's work, my father's understanding of the Talmud, to fruition. He makes a variety of statements in the book about what Talmud is and how important it is, as described in language before. And it's really the key book to understand. To understand Talmud is a, is a, is a short glimpse. It's also a very short book, I mean, relatively speaking. It's 150 pages, more or less. Um, and it's a book that's been around almost, I would like to say, about 40, 45 years already in the market. Keep selling. People buying it, I think it's a good book. It's a, it's a very uh, up. It's very clear what's the agenda of the book. It's teach you what is Talmud. Part of the problem is that even even if you talk a normal kid here in Israel who went to rabbinical school from a young age, was you know even part of maybe his, his elementary school and or high school, have no idea what a Talmud is. Right? You go to school and you hear Talmud. It, it, it's like the first time you go to English lit, right? Running straight and give you Shakespeare, you sit there like an idiot because you have no idea what Shakespeare's background. It's a famous line. I mean, you take the you take the famous uh, Venice of Merchants quote, right? If it's raining, uh, it will not be wet, so on and so forth. Which is, it looked like a pure racism. Like it will not pass today. But in, if you take the context context of William Shakespeare being being in England that he did not see a Jew ever. Is the Jews were expelled, expelled already. The fact that he wrote that Jews have emotions, forget it. It doesn't depict them as the nicest person in the world. You know, you know, it's the fact that he can talk about it, the fact that he can be in the conversation, that is already a huge merit. So you judge the book by not by its cover, but really by its content and the content of the time. So the Sanchez Talmud will give you the references of the time. Because the Talmud, in our major works, the Talmud is the third book in the process, right? We have the Bible, then we have the Mishnah, which is basically the rabbi commentating on the, on the commandments in the Torah. The Torah has 630 commandments, maybe more, of, of, of practical action we have to do that have, don't come with explanation, really. Don't come with a manual how to do that. It takes something as simple as as respecting your father and your mother, right? Which is obvious. It's a, obviously it's an obvious commandment, but apparently God thought it's important enough to put in ten commandments. But it doesn't come with a guideline. The only guide, the only guideline, only guideline we know is that is in later in, in the Torah, in the Bible, mentioned you should not beat your parents and you should not curse your parents. Okay, but, but that, that that is hardly answering the question: What is respecting your parents? How far I have to go with it? You know, if my parents insult me, do I still have to respect them? If my parents hurt me, do I still have to care about them? And so on and so forth. I mean, those kind of questions have been, first of all, asked 
and some to some extent answered in the Mishnah. And then the third tier is the Talmud. The Talmud took whatever conversation we had, both in the written Mishnah and the written Bible, to everything we have orally and everything else we have by tradition that we develop. So the Talmud is, is that. So without getting the, uh, I think the essential Talmud is a must read. Anybody who want to open the Talmud should read this book, which again, it, it, this is a shorter version or a more concise version of the later book, which called the Reference Guide of the Talmud. But as a reference guide, it's much more reference than essential. This is stuff that most people never touch. I mean, measurement in the Talmud. Um, is a small dictionary in the reference guide that most people don't ever going to use unless they're going to learn Talmud in the original language, which is a, is a small amount of people. So the standard Talmud will give you the background, the method, the logic, the, the, the rationale behind it, and of course the importance and the historical significance of the book. It's clearly from the reaction of people around us. The, the Talmud was, and, and, and sadly enough, some, uh, some uh, negative websites, still the source of all evil in the world. Now, mainly, mainly the main reason is because people judge the book on our terms, on our modern days, even though terms have changed. Life changed, situation changed. Things that we never imagined in the past are no longer applicable. I give an example of the one of the most known examples in the Talmud is about the rules of doing business with somebody who's idol worshiper. Right? But the Mishnah in tractate idol worship, that's called the tractate name, says not to do business with somebody who's idol worshiper three days before, three days after, before his holiday. Right? So if you take any holiday that we celebrate today in the world, they take Say, for example, I don't know, a New Year's Eve. Theoretically, if I put this in a context that is not a Jewish holiday, it's automatically getting very close to the notion of idol worship. And if I cannot do business with you three days before, three days after, when I'm going to do business? You know, there's no time. We have, a, as we all know, and especially if you go back to the old time, we're not the only one who celebrates Sunday, you know, Saturday, Sunday. The, the, the fact that some people celebrate every Sunday was a common practice both in Persia and other places. Again, did we they adapt from us? We don't know. But in reality speaking, if I cannot do business with somebody on Sunday because it's not my holiday, so basically it's giving me having one day to do business, which is Wednesday, which is very, very limited to what a person can do. So, so the Mishnah brings it, right? And Talmud immediately talked about it. But then later commentators explain that this is not realistic. Because life is changing. That is extremely important to understand that even in the context of Talmud. The Talmud is not a book that was written in, a, in 10 years or 20 years. It was written and, and accumulated by a variety of, of sages and scholars throughout historical, historical turmoil or historical rest for hundreds of years. And the Talmud, the, the, the central Talmud also brings you the reality that not everything in the book is holding holding its position. Certain facts are no longer facts. Example, the Talmud believe, there's a part of the Talmud that believe that there's a human being that is half human, half half uh, earth. Okay? Why they got into this, don't know. They might confuse it with, you know, monkeys who are trees. I think that a new kind of monkey never saw 
you know, I can imagine a thousand things, but clearly we're not there yet, right? We're not there anymore. Our belief is moving forward, right? We, again, now, in the other side, there's reference in the Talmud that the world is round already in fifth century. Now, obviously, we didn't accept that till much later in the history of the world. But yeah, so Talmud has part of it that you take it as folklore, history, culture, religion, science. And the, and the essential Talmud, this called the essential, goes through all those sections and explain how to function. And we definitely go through many examples because that will kill the entire purpose of the book. But he brings us those kind of things there. The person can start getting a concept what is the Talmud and why it's so important and why we need to learn it, so on and so forth. Another work by your father is on some of the personalities that contributed to the Talmud. The book is called Talmudic Images. Do you have a favorite or interesting Talmudic figure you can share with us to give us something of a taste of your father's book? Absolutely. So, hey, my father did not pick everybody. He picked the people he thought are important for him, for my father, and what important for what he think they are the, the most significant of all. So... You take, I will take two, one in brief. One is Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva was one of my father's favorite sages, and I don't remember if it's in the book or not. Um, but the idea of Rabbi Akiva is a guy that's starting his life very late. His spiritual journey only started when he's 40. He, and he had this amazing love story between him and Rachel, which became become his wife, who is the daughter of the third most richest person in Jerusalem at that time. It's an lo- amazing love story, the way she encouraged him to go and learn. And he's like, you know, I'm 40. What the heck, man? I'm, 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 I, I have sheep. I, I'm, a, you know, I'm a shepherd. I'm not going to go learn now. Why do I need these people? They're nuts. Why do I have to sit down and run books all day? But she tells me it's very important for me. Money I have and nothing to worry about, do it. Obviously, the moment she said that line, a father realized she's going to marry this shepherd and she and he disown her. Um, and then she become basically... She does. She brings money home for herself, and he goes to learn Torah for forty, for twenty-four years or twelve years, depends on the custom. Become amazing sage because apparently the man was very talented and very, and very bright. Again, it's, it's a sign. The, the reading of it is not just a reading. Reading of Rabbi Akiva is is this guy is going from from an innocent shepherd to a militant supporter of the great rebellions against the Romans in in in, in second century. Um, He's a guy that has no problem to get to a major clashes with the authorities. He's a guy that sits and, and sees destruction of the temple on one side, but going to war on the other side about trying to redeem the temple. It's, it's a very peculiar personality, and I think it's the reason my father, if I remember correctly, it was one of his really favorite people. And the relationship between him and, and Rachel, his wife, really became, you know, they were almost synonymous to the love between Jacob and Rachel. This is apparently to do with Rachel, not to do with Jacob. It's the Rachel name that apparently brings it up. You know, Ricky was in passion with her, and then eventually, he, you know, the story goes that he, after he became the great sage he was, he bought her the call Yushalayim Shel Zahav, bought her Jerusalem of gold, was a jewelry, uh, kind of a tiara that the women of Jerusalem used to wear. He got it as in the end, and eventually. That's where the story goes that he comes back to Jerusalem and he has 12,000 students behind him. You know, huge. Later on, there's the soldiers who became, this is the, the 
students became the soldiers that went to fight against the Romans. They all been killed later. But at that moment in time, the conversation he comes in, his father-in-law, which he did not recognize clearly because it's been 12 years and the men changed from a shepherd to a scholar. A good movie by title, by the way. Shepherd to a scholar. He comes to him and asks him what to do because he disavowed his daughter from any belonging. So what he's going to do now, because he really loves his daughter and he wants to pay, but because he took her off, it's not just like, you know, it's not like he's saying, I'm not going to give you money. It's actually an oath you take. What is he going to do about it? And Rabbi Akiva asking the first question is, if you knew your son would be a sage, would you make the swear? So said, of course not. He said, if you know, and he went on and said, in the Kalba Savua, which is the father of Rachel, saying, if you knew Aleph Bet, I will not do the own. So, I mean, Rabbi Akiva really came all the way from nothing to something. He really did the complete option, which is a great, in my view, this is a story, is, is, is a tremendous because it ain't mean that everybody ever hope. Doesn't matter, you can always start again. You can always have an option to start. And that's what Rabbi Akiva teaches. That is one scholar that I think my father loved with. I think at a certain point in time, we're probably going to compile everything he wrote about it. Maybe we may try to make another book booklet just about Rabbi Akiva and Roch and his wife, Rachel. You know, that's one. The second one is, is the famous uh, pair, Rabbi, Rava and Abaye. Rava and Abaye were partners in learning, and they constantly, constantly, constantly debate throughout the time. But I don't know if they had 300 debates or 250 debates. It was a huge amount of debates. And in 90% of the time, maybe 95% of the time, Rava is the winner. Rava is the dictator, is the, the law is being the law and the opinion, his opinion holds. And Abaye loses, loses all the time. Um, in six cases, six cases in time, Talmud where he wins. And my father takes these two personalities, these two guys who seem like they're, you know, just two scout, the two, two personalities on a book. Right? It's not a big deal. It's not, it's not like it's a novel that, you know, you can develop this, you know, the spiritual growth and talk about the life. There's nothing there. It's really just reading between the lines where my father had the ability to do to do so, to find what was unique about these two and why also why the perspective on life was so different. So I'll give you a, a sample. I, I can give you the audience view a, a sample, a very basic example. In our tradition of learning, Usually in every in every school, in a religious school, of course, that you learn Talmud, you start between fourth or fifth grades, depends on your school. And the first track that you learn is tracted Baba Mitzia, the Migel Gate. It's it's uh it's the track that dealing with all kind of per- interpersonal relationship with practical action. For example, the Talmud starts with what happens if you walk in the street and you find you find a, a garment that's very nice. And you grab it in one side, and another guy said, grab it on the other side, and you both claim it's yours. Well, I found it first. How you divide it. Um, and so on, so on, all kind of things. So one of the, one, when you start in school, it's dealing with the concept of a lost object. One of the commandments we have in the Bible is that if you find an object, another object belongs to somebody, you have to return it. Not just you have to return it in the sense of you putting a nice sign in your back in your supermarket on your local Ucroft or whatever you have in, in local area. It's more simple more so you actually in the old time used to go to the temple in Jerusalem. There was a main, there was a, a, a stand or or some kind of a, a huge huge rock or stone 
that people used to stand there and announce, I have found this and this. Anybody who has marking on it can come and claim it. Okay, so that, that is the, the basic idea. You have to find an object, you have to, you have to return it. Now, the Talmud, because that's one of the nature of the Talmud, is to ask questions. Now, not necessarily you want an answer, not necessarily all the options of the answering are practical, but the question is there. And the question is, if I found an object, what is the time, where, is the, where in the timeline this object become mine? We give two options. Option number one is that the, the moment I picked it up. The moment I picked it up, you gave up. The best example for that is money. If you find money or, let's say, a can of Coke, Okay? Or, uh, you know, whatever you drink, you know, a bottle of scotch. Hey, you find a bottle of scotch on the floor, you pick it up. I don't know why you would do that, but presumably you pick it up. If the moment you pick it up, everybody in the world knows that you give up hope on it. Nobody, nobody thinks in the right mind you're going to go around it, especially when it's come to modern money. Uh, there's no way to tell who it belongs to, unless you have amazing memory. You remember the numbers, you know, the, the serious number. Nobody can do this. You know, if you lost a hundred bucks, nobody go back, right? The other option is say no. The only time you can actually become yours is when I know that I lost it and I lost hope to get it. Get it. Now, the difference is it's very simple. Because if I picked it up before it belonged to you, before it belonged to me, because you did not lose hope yet, right? So you still own the property. If you still own the property or the, the, the whatever it is, I, I have to go and announce it. I have to go and return back to you. But if I know that you lost hope, I can pick it up and it's mine completely. Right? So these are the two sides. Do I lose hope immediately or do I lose hope only when I actually practically know that I lost hope? Right? And obviously, it still depends on what we're talking about. Something that is more important, you're not losing hope till you lose hope. Like you actually have to lose hope. Uh, you know, if you if, if a person doesn't lose money but loses his wallet or his credit card, okay, then you all of a sudden the person has much more of a of a. It's automatically right. You're not losing hope because you know you look home and you walk around and you touch everything you have. You look in the couch behind the corner. Recommends a great place. Things fall down all the time. You know, the kids' room, the grandkids' room, the, the, the whatever it is, you're looking around for it because it's the wallet. It's not only some pieces of money. So the, the Talmud brings a major debate between a buyer and rabbi. A buyer is the, in the mindset that you don't lose hope till you actually say, I lose hope, or you think it, you know, you think it in your head. And rabbi said, no, if the thing is no value or there's no marking on it, I don't care if you don't know about it. I think it's significant. You lost it. It's mine. Right? So that is the two characters. Now, they're debating in one way or another on this similar concept of, of ownership and responsibility and communal responsibility throughout the Talmud. As I said, rubber win all the time, but fine, doesn't. And one of the explanations behind it is, is the background. Rubber came from a very, very, very powerful house. And he was well-to-do, well-to-speak, and, and very impressive men. And for him, you know, for him, finding an, any object, it was losing any object was probably significant, right? If, if take one of the top 10 in Forbes, losing $10,000 is like me losing 10 cents. You know, it's significant. You come from, it's automatically, you realize that there's no 
that it's not important. It's not worth to spend the time now looking for the stones. If I can go to the bank and say, look, I lost the money, issue me a new credit card. Instead of a buyer, that's the way my father described it, a buyer, came, a buyer was an orphan. And one thing we know today, modern psychologists, that orphans are more clingy to things because they don't have their own until you get something, until they own something, they keep it all the way. They keep it as much as they can. They, they, they take ownership in a way that it says, look, it's mine forever. And therefore, a person like that come and describe his opinion. He says very clearly, I'm not losing hope till I lost hope. I'm going to go look for that. You know, I'm going to look for that bundle of, of money by the city. You know, and, and I'm not going to give up hope. And I'm not, that, that's the difference. That could, again, but that's psychoanalysis of the information. Or this is a story about the, the people. In general, my father, when my father taught sages or scholars, he really went into the meaning of who they are. He tried to create a full characteristic of the individual who's dealing with. Which, by the way, it's it's part of the it's part of the 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 thing, the beauty of of my father' ideas. He did not look at the sages as remote scholars. They're not what we call, you know, the scholars of all. For him, they were living creatures. They, he had a relationship with them. I'm not, I hope he didn't think that he spoke to them and answered it, but, uh, but in his mindset, you know, they were alive. They, they, he understood them. He, you know, he put it in the historical context, in the spiritual context, in the religious context, and certainly in the familiar context. You know, if somebody married three women and the first to die, and he had no kids, it had a bearing on the way he perceived Jewish law. You know, it's a, it's a perception of how you read text. For example, one, one of the most obvious things like that is the way you read the Bible. The original Bible, as we all know, came in a scroll with no punctuation mark. So there's some verses that we don't know when the beginning, when the end. We made a decision because essentially you had to read this book. We had to make a line. But in reality, we don't know if the comma comes between this word or that word. And that changed the entire context of the story. For example, one of the concepts we have in, in the interactive in Sanhedrin is the concept of the proof of resurrection, that after the person dies and be resurrected, okay? So the one proof, which not told in the end, but it says, we bring it is, it's a line that says about Moses, you're gonna lay with your, you're gonna lay with your forefathers, comma, and your people should be awakened and be, and, and do idol worship. Okay, so that's where we read it today. But is an option to read this thing completely different. You are laying down with your parents, with your forefathers, and rise. Your people, etc., etc. So it, we just don't know. And again, the Talmud brings it back and forth, and obviously they, they read it the way it's supposed to be read. But the many stuff. So the, the sages, if you take the emotional content, you take the spiritual content, you take their the existence where they were in the world, the commas have a bearing. My father, what my father tried to do throughout his process was A, the easiness of learning. A, a person, every human being, and it's interesting because I, I don't think this is apply, obviously, not all of your audience are Jews. Um, obviously, every person has to do three things every day. That's my father's perspective, and I, and I hold by it very strong. person should give, every morning, give something for charity. It's a coin, half a coin, quarter of a coin, a, a a dollar bill, five, whatever. Every day a person should give something because that's to show he cares about the other, right? That's our external work. Then every person should do once a day at least learn the word of God. 
Or, and it doesn't matter if it's the Bible or the Mishnah or the Talmud or it's philosophical understanding of what divinity is. I, I don't care. Because that is the key. And third, a person has to contemplate oneself. Person to know who he is. Before, as we know, it's very important to think about your family, think about your kids, think about your work. All nice. A person also has to take a small part of the day, maybe five minutes, and be egotistic and be self-serving. And thinking five minutes only about yourself. And the, the question you have to ask today is today better than yesterday? That's very simple. That's the question in mind. Now, that, if you take that concept, a person has to think that's what my father actually held. And you're now implying this on those sages and all those scholars for our generation. All of a sudden, it's important to know who they are. Now, we have, I think the Talmud has, I don't know, 500 or, or something like that, maybe more, of sages. We don't have this kind of background on each one of them. Obviously, we have more background on those who are very famous. For our uh, uh, great benefit, a lot of time, in, as they didn't have last names, or most people did not have last names in those days, the fact that somebody was, you know, Jack A. Smith of Jerusalem, you know, he was from Jerusalem. You know, it was not a question about it. You know, it was obviously that what he did. And he gave us some background also. But even that has an implication of how he thought, how he understood, how he comprehended things. You know, and then these, you know, you can also talk about the, the, where they were on the line, on the timeline. Because some people, you know, were earlier, later, you know. So all these things my father tried to really bring constantly, a person that has, um, my father believed that you read the Talmud is, is it's a live being. And you have a conversation with the sages, and the sages become what you do. You understand what they come up with these lines, even though some of the lines are, as I mentioned, some of them are close to ridiculous. Right? But you didn't understand where they come from. Why would a person say dissented? Why would a person believe in demon? Okay? I never saw one. I, I, don't, I don't know anybody in my life who saw real demons, you know, the one, whatever description you want to put in. But it almost gone on three pages explaining what is a demon. And clearly, they believed in it in enough seriousness that they put it in. Now, so the question is, you have to ask it, what happened? And, and there's many other topics like that. You understand the context of time and place and effort is very important. So these two books are complementing each other in a sense. You know, with the Talmud, when you start looking on, we try to put a short synopsis about every stage in the Talmud. That's, that's available, of course, already in the book. But between the essential Talmud and the biblical and the Talmudic images, by definition, I bring together this kind of a more of a background to my read that all of a sudden this read or learning of the Talmud becomes something of significance, of importance. And it's, and it's not just shallow. It's basically trying to move the page from two dimension to three dimension. And once you do that, I think the Talmud learning or even glimpses of Talmud learning are amazingly fascinating. Rabbi Many, as always, it has been a pleasure having this conversation with you. Thank you for taking the time. All right. Till next time. Friends, you've been listening to New Books in Jewish Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. Until next time, goodbye.